This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson this evening alongside Bloomberg's Christine Aquino, fresh back from New York with much perspective to give on what is happening in the Big Apple. Let's first talk about what is happening in these markets. The Dow Jones up a little bit. The S&P up by six tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq up by eight tenths of one percent. All of this delivered on very light volume. Stocks 50 here in Europe up by two tenths of one percent. The FTSE up by one tenth of one percent. The CAC actually finished in negative territory. Again, delivered on super light volume. The market is basically cruising into what is going to happen tomorrow, the main event of the week, 10 a.m. New York time. Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, the FOMC, will be on his feet at Jackson Hole in Wyoming, delivering a much-anticipated speech. Uh, and the market is on tenterhooks and is waiting to see what is going to be happening. Uh, in terms of some of the other asset classes you need to be aware of, German uh, one-year power prices, French one-year power prices surging once again today. Uh, we've seen French one-year forward power prices getting to 900 megawatts per hour. This is EDF says that its nuclear fleet of power stations won't be able to deliver that much energy uh, this winter. That's going to be a problem because usually we get power here in the UK from the French. If they don't have it, that's going to be something that we need to factor in. Natural gas has continued to climb very, very sharply as well. UK nat gas up by 8%, another 8%. Dutch gas up by another 10%. Gilt yields have come down at the front end fairly sharply today, but after a big rise yesterday. Uh, and that's the dollar's a little bit on the back foot. But again, I would wait for Jay Powell to speak at Jackson Hole tomorrow. Now, earlier on, and we're going to hear the full interview a little bit later on, uh, Kelly Lines and I caught up with uh, Greg Jensen. He is the co-CEO of Bridgewater, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, one of the most widely followed people on the planet when it comes to the world of finance. Uh, and he was talking about the possibility that stocks and bonds could drop another 25% from here as the Fed raises rates and delivers QT. Christine, that just gives an idea of just how important the speech is tomorrow from Jay Powell. Absolutely, Guy. And, you know, regardless of what he says, markets are ready to pounce on uh, the speech. And, and I was asking actually earlier my colleagues across the newsroom and also um, some of the traders and investors that we speak to, what is the worst thing that, that he could say? Is it that he says something one way or the other in terms of hawkish or dovish? Or is it that he says nothing, you know, nothing definitive in terms of um, the, the approach to policy, more of this let's wait and see sort of approach? And I think a a lot of people have said that it's probably the latter that might do more damage than him taking a stance either way. The, the market is clearly anticipating that he is going to be hawkish. The market has set itself up for a hawkish speech. This time last year, we were dealing with what I could describe as only a dovish speech. He was talking about the idea that inflation was going to be transitory. The, the difference in a year it's, it's almost worth taking a step back and just appreciating how far we've come and how quickly 
this inflation narrative has developed. Absolutely, Guy. I mean, I for one would love to see a side-by-side comparison of the statement that he made at Jackson Hole last year versus yeah. what he's going to be making this year. Because, yeah, you're right. I think this time last year, we were still very convinced that, oh, you know, we had some temporary supply shocks because of still uh, the COVID overhang. But this is something that will resolve itself fairly quickly, at least within the, the, the year. But, you know, fast forward uh, next uh, August, and here we are talking about double-digit inflation for some of the major economies in the G10 and uh, no signs of it ebbing. No, absolutely not. It was interesting, um, Mohamed el who writes for Bloomberg, was talking about this on air a little bit earlier on, on Bloomberg television, talking about the fact that the Federal Reserve should not blink, quote, the Fed is so late, he said, that it's looking at two challenges, putting inflation genie back in the bottle and looking at not creating too much damage to economic growth and inequality. Christine, if, if I, this is this is... This is a big problem for the Fed. But I I just almost wonder whether the Fed's got the easiest job here. Uh, You look at what the ECB and the Bank of England have got to deal with with right now. And Elizabeth Schnabel uh, from the ECB and and the governor of the Bank of England are both going to be, probably are already, in Jackson Hole in Wyoming. Um, They've got massive, massively greater problems. The ECB's got a currency that is crashing. The pound is crashing. You've got a cost of living crisis that is going to be ripping through these economies. Potentially, we could be facing blackouts this winter. We were joking on air a little bit earlier on talking about Peloton. Americans are trying to figure out whether or not they can afford a Peloton. Europeans are trying to figure out whether they can keep the lights on. Absolutely, Guy. And I think I would tend to agree with you. Even though the Fed's job ahead is tough, admittedly, I think it's still the least bad of a really terrible bunch of jobs for central bankers. Because, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, that is really the stark difference that struck me as I was returning from New York to London is the conversations in in New York is that, oh, things cost a little bit more now. So I'm feeling a slight pinch in my wallet. And then I come over to London across the pond and we're talking about what are we going to do in case we really see those uh, supposed uh, planned blackouts uh, come to fruition? Do we get a generator or do we just get a lot of blankets? I bought bought the generator and we've got lots of blankets. He's bought the generator. I'm not kidding. As soon as this story starts, started i'm like this is going to be a problem you're gonna to have to give me recommendations guy. I, I bought the generator uh, i'm out there a, a friend of mine who also works for a hedge fund was talking about this he said you could work here we're also bearish all these hedge funds are like really super cautious at the moment um just kind of extrapolate a little bit on that though the, the, what how what has been the experience coming back here you talk about the fact that we're talking about needing to buy generators but is there did you kind of did you see sticker shock i'm just i'm just trying to understand why the Americans are struggling to get their arms around how bad it is here in Europe. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely got sticker shocked every single time I went to the grocery store in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I, I think that speaks uh, uh, to a lot of things. You know, I think just the idea that um, uh, goods and services there cost more than, than it does here. But also, again, the things that people in conversations, you know, their their fears and concerns about the future really is, as you mentioned, it's, it's kind of uh, over there. It's a choice between some of these kind of luxuries that maybe yep. they'll have to start giving up uh, heading into the final months of the year. And then suddenly here, it really was quite a stark difference because, yeah, we, we were talking about, again, uh, the, the idea of people having to choose between food and, and heating. I think somebody else sent me uh, a, a story about uh, f- uh, food shelters that they've had to set up for pets in the UK. Yeah. You know? And this is the sort of hardship um, that is very much in your face over here. Um, and you could argue it's probably reflective 
of uh, the, the policy response and the difference there that we've seen over here versus in the U.S.? It does feel I, uh, it does feel as if we are slightly not in control of our destiny here. I, we, and, and I think that probably is a reflection of reality. Vladimir Putin probably is going to control energy prices this winter for Europe. That's going to be the big swing factor, his decision making. And we can't predict what he is going to do. And that that is incredibly difficult. Even the ECB, even if it hikes rates, and it's fascinating to see what's happening here. You look at the front end of the of, of the of the German curve. Yields have gone sharply to the upside at the same time as prices have come sharply down in terms of what the, what the valuation of the euro is. And that just exacerbates the problem. We can't control the energy price. We're going to see a huge energy, energy spike um, t- tomorrow being announced by, by Ofgem. None of this feels as if we are in control of the narrative. And I think that is what is really disturbing here in Europe, that, that Europe is almost flying blind into this winter. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely get that feeling. And I think that is very much starkly reflected in just the level of the currency here. And really the fact that despite uh, the amount of tightening that is being priced, still being priced into both the UK and European rates markets, the currencies are really just going the other way. And that is very much a reflection of how people feel about the economic fundamental deterioration is very much real and very much on the ground here in, in Europe and the UK. It does feel as appropriate as if one of the biggest stories that we're talking about here in Europe, given the economic backdrop, given the economic backdrop here in the UK, is effluence. It all feels pretty effluence right now. Uh, And in the next block, we're going to be talking about that, what is happening with the sewage crisis that we're seeing here in the UK. What does it tell us about British politics and the state of them and what needs to be done next? Therese Raphael is going to be joining us. She's sitting down right now. That conversation next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to Cable Live on DAB Digital Radio. One of the first pieces I read this morning on the Bloomberg Terminal was written by Therese Raphael. The stink over Britain's sewage gets political. The UK is in such trouble on so many different fronts right now that talking about sewage does feel a bit like a metaphor for what is happening more broadly. Uh, but Therese, this is a specific problem that we're facing right now. Even the French are getting upset with us uh, about what is happening. What What is happening here? Is this a is this just a, a, a final realisation, a, a, a whiff of the fact that the UK basically as we've expected for so, as we've experienced for so long has basically just underinvested and is now managing everything so badly that basically the only solution we have is to literally pump sewage into the sea it is partly that and it's partly climate change so our sewage systems in the UK were built for a much smaller population size they weren't built for the kind of dramatic climate events that we've yep. had and while the two problems that we've been reading a lot about, one of which is water leakage and the other is sewage dumping into pristine rivers and waterways have been around for a while. What happened is this summer is we've had this long period of drought, as anyone who's been here knows, and then we had this deluge of rain and that the the ground was dry, so it didn't absorb the water from the deluge. It went into the sewage systems. When those sewage systems get overflowed, the water companies dump them with all of our human waste into riverways. Now, back in 2012, the European Commission took the UK to court over the level of sewage that water companies were dumping into rivers, and the court ruled that this could only happen in exceptional circumstances. But it happened 400,000 times in 2020 alone. So this is a very 400,000 
dumps of, I think, in a five-year period, it was something like 9.4 million hours of sewage being dumped into Britain's waterway. So this is a really, you know, persistent issue. So the question is why Britain has privatized water companies, one of the only countries in the world that does. I think Chile was another one. Um, and, and so the Labour Party is saying, well, that, well, that's the problem. We need to renationalize these water companies and then it will be solved. But, you know, I, I argue in, in the column I wrote today that that's actually not a great solution, both because it's expensive and because it, under, you know, public ownership, these companies yeah. will compete with all the other things that all the other areas of, for, of public services. So it's, it's not necessarily going to get the funding they need, but but probably a better answer is better regulation. Right. Now, Therese, as you mentioned, right, this has been ebbing and flowing, uh, excuse the pun, uh, for the a good part of the last decade, and especially in, in the last two years. So it's not necessarily a new issue. It's been, it's been something that's been brewing in the background. But uh, is there something about the current climate in the UK, whether it's political or just the broader macro environment here, that's making this a uh, more pertinent issue now more than ever? Well, I mean, I think anything that is, you know, piled on to cost of living, rising inflation, uh, you know, an overburdened NHS, anything that suggests uh, mismanagement of public resources and critical infrastructure makes people nervous right now because of the, you know, Boris Johnson's government fell over ethical issues. Yep. But, you know, Arguably, it also fell over issues of competence of governance. So these are critical infrastructure. And I think, you know, it also comes in August when people are out enjoying nature. Uh, you know, the reports that shellfish are being contaminated is, you know, not great when people are sitting in seaside cafes ordering oysters and things like that. So, uh, yes, it just compounds matters. And Liz Truss, who's the front runner to be the next prime minister, was environment secretary at a time when a key budget was slashed that was uh, regulating or was surveying water companies and looking at, at some of their sewage dumping. So, you know, it, it does raise questions about a conservative government that is campaigning on cutting regulation at a time when, you know, arguably failed need, regulation yeah. has contributed to the problem. Why do we pay the CEOs of these companies so much? Why do we allow these companies to pay dividends? Why don't we force these companies to A, pay their CEOs less, like they do in Scotland, where it is a differently run system. And why don't we, rather than allowing them to pay dividends, force that money to be reinvested into an infrastructure system that you say is, is not adequate to keep up with where we are now and certainly will not be adequate to keep up with the number of houses that we're planning to build? Yeah, so private companies will always respond to the incentives that they have in front of them. And that is, I think, the, that is the, the charge sheet that the regulator offlot needs to answer. Um, so these companies have very complex financial structures or mostly ultimately owned by private equity infrastructure funds. They've been able to basically leverage the balance sheet, uh, pay very big dividends to their owners, um, and uh, and just pile on debt for some investment. I mean, it has to be said that since privatization, water is cleaner, it's better, these companies have, uh, yep. the customer service is better. You know, there are a lot of uh, of benefits that have come down the pike through privatization, including investment. However, you know, that has to be set against, um, as you say, this financial engineering that hasn't really worked to the benefit of the customer vis-a-vis -vis the, the shareholder. 
Now, Teres, you mentioned the the solution here appears to be that the Tories just need to do a good job or a better job of, of regulating these companies. Under a Liz Truss administration or premiership, how much impetus would we actually have for such a project, considering the many other challenges that, that she would be facing if she does uh, succeed Boris Johnson to become the next prime minister? Yeah, I think that's the the key problem is that she would be coming to office with an in-tray absolutely piled high with, you know, not just kind of the usual challenges of balancing kind of various demands on the on the public purse, but, you know, really big systemic problems from cost of living to, you know, the NHS, and we can go down the list. So how much, you know, energy and time would be spent on this? She has said she will get come to grips with the water uh, the, the water issue. Yep. I think it risks becoming a metaphor of failed Tory government if she doesn't. And so I think given her, you know, affiliation with some of these regulatory changes as environment secretary, there is a big incentive for her to get this out of the headlines. Um, and people, you know, particularly conservative voters, I mean, the the, the clue is in the word conserve. Yep. They care about the environment. So I, I, th- I mean, I think she, she will have to try to get a grip on it. But that means more regulation, probably means higher water prices. Let's pivot to another utility. Tomorrow, Ofgem is going to be announcing a massive, massive increase uh, in the energy price cap. What is your perspective on what is going to happen here from a political point of view? If we work our way through a winter with a significantly higher cost of energy and then potentially see that rising again in April and then staying very, very elevated, this is going to dominate a Liz Truss, let's assume that it's her, a Liz Truss first year in office, first 100 days in office. Yeah, I would expect that the first sound we're going to hear is a screeching sound of a, you know, a vehicle going into reverse because her campaign uh, message has been that tax cuts will deliver the innovation and growth that will ultimately, you know, generate the kind of benefits for people on the supply side. And yet, you know, you cannot increase, uh, you know, people's cost of living by that many times without real pain. We're now looking at half of households in fuel poverty. If you take that 10% of uh, of expenditure uh, measure of fuel poverty, but, you know, whatever measure you take, it's, it's clearly going to be millions of households who will need support. And I think one of the first things she'll have to do is, um, you know, what they call a fiscal event, whether you call it an emergency budget or not, find some way to help out the households. Well, let's talk more about what we're going to see tomorrow. We're joined now uh, by Bloomberg Renewable Energy and Climate Reporter Will Mathis. Will, just just give us a sense. We, we now think it's going to be around three and a half thousand in terms of what the price cap is going to be lifted to. It'll be announced tomorrow. It'll then be implemented in October. This is a big rise. This is a big pickup from where we were before, an 80% increase. But just give us a scale of sort of how far up the mountain we are in terms of where prices could ultimately go. Yeah, there's there's really nowhere to go but up in the coming year. And, you know, even over next summer, you know, all of next year, the cap will probably be a thousand pounds higher than what we will see tomorrow. I mean, that's all based on futures prices of energy. So, you know, those markets are very volatile. Things could change. But, you know, over the past year, they've only continued to break records on almost daily basis, rising many times higher than anywhere where they've been in the past. So it's just going to keep getting worse uh, as far as anyone can tell. 
So, well, you know, just observing from conversations with my own friends and also on various uh, online message boards, it seems like from the consumer perspective, there is a strategy now building of how people are going to manage their energy bills. With some people actually considering the reality that they may have to default on a few of these uh, monthly bills given the the astronomic costs. Now, I'm curious, from uh, an energy provider perspective, is this something that companies are preparing for as well uh, in terms of the, the probable defaults and or the rise in defaults that, that we might see, especially over the winter time. Yeah, companies are definitely concerned about this. Um, all of the suppliers have been raising the alarm to try and get government to do something, yep. particularly spending a lot of money to support households to pay for these bills because they know that you know they're the ones who are essentially providing energy on credit to their customers. You know. You, you use the energy and then you pay at the end of the month. So you could end up using a lot more than you can afford before you realize. Yep. And, you know, the, the, the suppliers are holding the bag for that. And, like, look what happened last year in the UK. We saw all these suppliers, mostly smaller suppliers, but some with hundreds of thousands of customers just going out of business because they sold energy that they couldn't afford to actually supply. And they had no choice but to go out of business, most of them. Therese, the, the plan that is increasingly being talked about within the energy industry is for a price cap, let's call it circa £2,000, um, maybe where prices are currently today, uh, and then basically you create a fund which you then socialise via bills or via taxation over the next 10 to 15 years. The issue with this is that it takes away, to a certain extent, the, the the price point component which will allow people or force people to reduce consumption. We are chasing limited supplies here. At some point, if we continue to consume what we are consuming right now or are expected to consume in a normal winter, there will simply not be enough. And we will end up in the situation where we may end up with rationing. How do we keep the pricing mechanism, the price point mechanism within the system, but at the same time protect consumers? How do we balance reducing demand and protecting consumers. This is going to be really difficult for the next government to deliver. Yeah, that, that's right. That's a dilemma. I mean, the French are heavily uh, subsidizing it on the price side, so the inflation, their inflation rate is lower, but yep. it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a hidden inflation. I mean, my, my view is that you, you, you want to support households. You want to provide the help directly to households rather than create the price distortions that, uh, the, the various distortions in terms of um, how people consume electricity and energy. Uh, you know, you also, a price cap can tend to reward those who use more energy, which can be wealthier exactly. households. So I would prefer to see more support for poorer and more vulnerable households, but that is very tricky to deliver. You have to means test it. Um, that that can be, uh, it, it can be subject to sort of fraud and waste. Uh, there have been some operational problems even in the very generous package that was designed in May. So, you know, for example, people on prepayment meters, how do you get the help to them? People who live in mobile homes, people who are carers of those who may be uh, receiving these bills. So that is all about delivery and the government would have very little time to put in place measures that would, you know, support maybe 8 million households, maybe more. So that that is the problem with delivering the household support. But there's no question that in terms of being consistent with climate change goals and delivering the kind of energy security um, and uh, independence that the government wants, you know, they want to move away from from a price cap, which, you know, is, is, is proved very problematic. 
Now, Torres, I think from what you said just now, it's very clear that all roads probably lead to some form of government support, whether it's directly to households or energy suppliers, maybe both. Uh, and it's a very interesting contrast to what you mentioned earlier, where Listras has been uh, campaigning on this platform of fiscal conservatism. It's very typical of the Tory party line. Why uh, that strategy? It's a very puzzling strategy when you also pointed out she's going to have to backtrack on that very, very quickly as soon as she takes office if she does indeed become the next prime minister. Yeah, one short answer to that is 160,000 Tory members who absolutely, you know, um, are uh, uh, very supportive of a strategy of small government, uh, uh, you know, hands off of cutting taxes. And that's why I think, you know, if she becomes prime minister in a week's time, we're going to see a change of tune. Well, final quick question to you. EDF announcing today that it's got significant problems with its nuclear reactors and those are going to persist for much longer. We normally rely on the French for electricity by the interconnectors over the winter. Is that electricity going to be there? That is uh, the big question for European power. It's not just for us, it's for Germany, it's for all of Europe. You know, France has been has shut all these reactors this summer to try and get them ready to be back online for winter. And that's it's not going to plan. And it is going to be one of the few make or break things for the European power. Do we know how short they could be? It, I, you know, it, 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 it's, it's such a hard question to pin down yeah. because it depends <laughs> on demand. It depends on wind. You know, if it's yeah. a really windy winter, the UK won't need power from France because they could be producing more than they need. Right. But at the moment, it's not very windy outside. And certainly, Germans are not good at this point. Therese Raphael, Will Mathis, both of you, thank you very much indeed. Greatly appreciate your time. Uh, this is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 5.30 in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Christine Aquino. Quick update on where we sit with markets as we head towards the key speech tomorrow delivered by Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve. 10 a.m. Eastern time is when that is going to be happening, 3 p.m. here in the UK. The S&P currently up by around half of 1%. The Nasdaq getting a little bit of a lift. Chinese stocks actually providing some momentum, but volume is light on both sides of the Atlantic. FTSE 100 finishing up by around one-tenth of 1%. Elsewhere, a bit of a bid coming back into the bond market, but bonds have been battered a bit late, uh, lately. Uh, so you've seen the, uh, the UK two-year down by 16 basis points today, all over the place, to be honest, uh, in terms of pricing. They're really hard to get a handle. But I think the story really continues to remain in the energy market. UK NAC gas today up by 8%. Dutch gas, the, the European contract, up by 10%. French power prices, and we were talking about this in the last block, uh, up through 900. This is one year forwards, up through 900 a megawatt hour. We're talking about a 10 times increase on a year earlier. These are epic, epic gains. Uh, And it's going to be interesting to see how new policy is going to be uh, needed to to deal with all of this and whether or not government is going to be able to act quickly enough. That certainly uh, is where we sit with the market. Let's talk about something a little lighter now, Christine. Who's your favourite football team? Do you have a favourite football team? Are you a football fan? Uh, I, I guess uh, whichever no. team that <laughs> David Beckham played for, that's my favorite. 
Okay, so Manchester United. Okay. I think we'll we'll pick on that one. Great. Um, this Saturday, there's some interesting games taking place, and if you're interested in kind of predicting who's going to win, maybe you need to be looking at what is happening in the aviation market. Bear with me on this. So you've got Man City. No, wait a second. Let's find let's find a good game for this Saturday. You've got Brighton versus Leeds. Brighton versus Leeds. I think Brighton are at home. I need to double check that. Kickoff is at three o'clock this Saturday. Liverpool are playing Bournemouth this Saturday. Again, a kickoff at three o'clock. Now, those are relatively long journeys between those those two cities. Uh, and as a result of which, most of the time, Premier League teams charter a plane and fly those planes down or up. This is a north-south thing. Like we, we live in a long country. So these are the kind of the long journeys. The problem is... And this is a great story that Sid Half Philip has, has written. Is that actually what we're seeing at the moment is that there's a bit of a plane shortage, and these teams are struggling to get hold of the aircraft that they would normally be expecting. And as a result of which, certain managers are starting to actually blame the lack of aircraft for their team's poor performances. So, Sid joins us now on the line. Sid, are we being serious here? Yeah, we are. So the travel chaos that's affecting you and me this summer seems to have uh, stepped up its game and affecting football teams now. Uh, so wow. how bad? So, so Christine's now lost for words. So how bad is it if if you are Manchester United and you want to charter a a jet or a turboprop takes a hundred people or say? I'm assuming that's kind of how many people they fly up and down. How easy is that to do? So it's very difficult at the moment to charter a plane, especially because a lot of people who started flying on private jets during the pandemic have continued to do so. And you've also got a, 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 a charter company that used to offer services. That's gone out of business. And then you have sort of people trying to avoid travel chaos and flying private planes. And so all of that sort of coming together and it's become really expensive to hire a private plane. And it's also very difficult to find one. So when Chelsea lost 3-0 to uh, Leeds, uh, Chelsea's manager, uh, Thomas Tuchel, said that uh, the preparations for the game had been affected by the changes to the travel plan. And essentially, Chelsea wasn't able to find a plane that was big enough to fly both the players and the, like, the staff as well to the match. So the team manager and his member of his staff had to take a bus up to Leeds. And that's what he blamed on the loss. A bus, the horror. <laughs> so this is how the other half lives, apparently. And apparently yeah. the other half is also having a hard time right now. But um, so, Sid, what a novel concept, right? We're, we're, we're uh, linking the private jet shortage with the team's performances. How is this being received by the fans? Are they actually buying uh, this argument or are the fans really not happy yeah. about uh, what sounds like yet another excuse for their football team not doing well? So it's a very complicated problem for football team because, one, it's it, it's also really bad from an environmental point of view. And so I was gonna get the fact this, yeah. that teams are u- using uh, planes to fly around to games is something that might not sit with uh, fans really well, especially those who are conscious of the environment. And so the clubs are sort of wary of complaining about the jet charter problems. And that's also, I mean, it's also a massive issue for the managers because... Uh, for the managers of the team, it's all about getting the players as much time for recovery and rest in between matches and training sessions. And so flying to play, uh, to games is much easier and quicker yeah. than having to spend hours on a plane or on a, on a train or a coach. 
And so that's the real quandary that they have at the moment because the UK also doesn't have a lot of domestic services, especially to sort of more fast-lung places. I'm seeing Liverpool-Bournemouth, the game's at Anfield in Liverpool, and I'm looking at the win probability. 89 for, for, for Liverpool, 8% on a draw. Bournemouth only winning three. Uh, I guess probably some of that maybe is down to the fact that uh, maybe Bournemouth is going to struggle to get uh, out of Bournemouth Airport uh, and get up, get up to, um, to, to, uh, to Liverpool. Sid, let's just broaden it out a little bit um, and move on to what is happening more broadly in the aviation industry. Kids go back to school in about 10 days' time. The summer season will be over. Where are we in the aviation industry's ability to now manage demand and supply? So we're in a bit of a mixed picture at the moment. So on the one hand, you have Gatwick Airport saying that they will not have to extend travel restrictions on number of flights. And they say that will end in August because they've ramped up staffing and they can manage with normal levels of traffic. On the other hand, you have British Airways that's cancelled about 8% of their winter schedule. That doesn't kick off until November. And they've cancelled about 8% of their winter schedule because of continuous sort of staffing issues. And we have Heathrow Airport that's extended its restrictions up to, up to 100,000 departing passengers a day until the 29th of October. So it's a mixed picture at the moment, and we really have to see how this sort of demand plays out as we get into the winter and sort of the autumn and the winter season. And that's normally a slow season for travel. But then this year, with lots of people not being able to go away during the summer, we might see some more demand. Now, Sid, yeah, the, the travel disasters over the summer definitely capturing headlines, both here in the UK and across the pond uh, in America. But, you know, there was a sense that, oh, this is just temporary. They just needed to match the staffing levels with the demand levels, and it'll probably normalize, as you say, uh, once uh, demand levels return to kind of more sustainable normal levels. But I, now that you're mentioning all these preparations that these airlines are making for the wintertime, do you get the sense that perhaps we're, we're getting to more of a this is now the new normal for travel where you know you get hit with a lot of staffing shortages and uh, just difficulty all around for everyone it, it does seem like it's improving i mean remember that british airways cancel about 13 percent of their uh, schedule this summer so eight percent of cancellation versus 13 percent probably not as bad but yes i mean i think we are in sort of some form of new normal because it is incredibly hard to sort of get staffing at the moment. I mean, yeah. airlines across Europe have struggled with staffing and BA is among the hardest hit because they dismissed about 10,000 workers at the peak of the pandemic. Great stuff, Sid. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely piece on the football. Really enjoyed reading that a little bit earlier on. I'm flying on Monday. I'm going to be brave enough to check a bag. We'll see what happens. Will it get there? Could be a bit of a coin toss. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So Jackson Hole, uh, the Kansas City meeting has kicked off. They're in Wyoming. Central bankers from around the world gathering. But all eyes really on Jay Powell's speech 
tomorrow. How is the market prepping for this? How is the market positioned for this? Well, earlier on today, Kayleigh Lyons and I spoke with Greg Jensen. He is, let's call him a heavyweight, certainly in the hedge fund community. Uh, he's the co-CIO over at Bridgewater Associates. We talked to, him, talked to him about what he was expecting from this meeting. I think most people know that the Fed's going to be describing um, their tough dilemma, that they're going to have to keep raising rates despite the fact that the economy is slowing. It's slowing at a very high level, uh, but it is slowing. And so they're going to have to be discussing that. And on the margin, that's probably bearish. It's most bearish because despite the fact that so many commentators, as your montage show, are saying um, the Fed's going to have to tighten a lot more uh, than they have, and that you shouldn't fight the Fed and such, the, the markets don't reflect that. Market conditions reflect inflation falling quite dramatically towards the Fed's target over the next 18, 24 months. And the markets are pricing for that decline in inflation to occur in a relatively stable economy. If you look at the stock market, actually the expected earnings over the next decade haven't come down at all this year, despite the decline in the equity market. It's all a function of interest rates rising. It's not at all a function of a readjustment of the view of earnings. So over time, well, I don't think, I, I think actually the Fed has telegraphed what they're gonna say and it won't be a huge, huge difference in what people expect in the short term. The longer term drying up of liquidity due to the quantitative tightening, the reality that starts to set in that inflation is more stubborn, the Fed tightens longer, that the expected easing in six to nine months doesn't materialize, and at the same time, profits and economic growth are weaker than people expect is going to make this a tough road, uh, tough road for assets. So while we'd be concerned with kind of the consensus among many uh, analysts that the Fed is going to tighten more than expected, the fact that the markets don't price that is the kind of interesting divergence at this point. How does the Fed get the market to price that? What needs to happen to get the market to price that? Well, I think that continuing on the path that they're on, right, raising interest rates, continuing quantitative tightening will work and will have the effect. It will drive down inflation. I think, unfortunately, it's going to drive down inflation and the economy together and that inflation is going to be more stubborn and you're going to get the movement that probably in the short term is higher interest rates across the curve and particularly on the long end, but higher interest rates across the curve and um, asset prices generally declining. They need to. Essentially, if you take the last decade, the reverse of these policies led to the situation where financial assets rallied so much more than the cash flows in the economy do. Generally, over very long periods of time, those things are aligned. The cash flows in the economy have to pay for the asset prices. We've gotten to such an extreme on that while this year has started to reverse that we're still something like 25, 30% above the normal relationship between cash flows and asset prices, which means there's a significant decline to come to kind of align the real economy with the financial economy. And we think we're in the midst of that. The deglobalization and definancialization is kind of the secular wave that we think we're in. And that means, you know, on the margin, like what you've seen in initial claims today, the employment market, labor is gaining in share. Um, which societally is a good thing. And at the same time, corporate profits are likely going to need to decline in share. And, and you're at the point where the economy is struggling to grow because essentially the labor market is very tight, capacity is very tight, and rates are rising. So I think what you're going to see is 
more strength in the real economy than in the financial economy. The financial economy converged to the real economy, and that's a that's a big move in financial assets, a big downward move in financial assets in total. To some extent, that'll be in bond markets. To some extent, that'll be in the equity market. But in aggregate, let's say asset markets declining in something like the 20-25% decline from here. In terms of the decline, 20 to 25%. That is a big chunk of change when you're thinking about the drops that we've already seen thus far. He's super bearish on what is happening here in Europe. Greg Jensen, the co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So as we have mentioned, Jackson Hole, the economic gathering that is capturing much attention, has kicked off in Wyoming. We're talking cowboy country here. Uh, The event is hosted uh, by the Kansas City Fed president, Esther George. And she kicked things off a little bit earlier on with a conversation with Bloomberg's Mike McKee and Kathleen Hayes. They, They started talking about interest rates and how high rates may ultimately have to go. Let's hear what Esther George had to say. It's very important that we are clear in our communication about the destination we're headed. And I think that destination is important, which is we have to get interest rates higher to slow down demand and bring inflation back to our target over some period of time here. So So let me ask you, Esther George, in particular then, uh, are you willing to keep hiking rates if you see unemployment rising, if you see the economy slipping towards what could be a recession, even into recession? Are you willing to stay on that path if inflation is still too high? So I think we have to, by mandate, bring that inflation rate down. And right now, the unemployment rate is running below, I think, what most people believe is a natural rate of unemployment. So the labor market is too tight. And by bringing demand down, we should begin to see the labor market loosen up a bit. I think we're already seeing some early signs of some of that consumption, some of that demand leveling off. But certainly you are not seeing it fully in the inflation data yet. It is still very broad-based and I think tells us there's more work to do. Your dissent in June was based in part on uh, concern about the lagged effects of rate moves on the economy. How long do you think lags are? Have they gotten shorter over the years? And if so, then when do you think they're going to really hit the rate moves, hit the economy? And what do you think happens? So I think it's been a longstanding premise, right, that there are long and variable lags with interest rate adjustments. So we have seen pretty quickly that those rate increases have transmitted to the housing market, for example, and mortgage rates pretty quickly. Uh, The question is, what else is in the pipeline? And I think we should expect, while we may see some shorter transmission in certain sectors, we are going to have to really see how it affects other things. For example, we know that there's still a lot of excess savings sitting out there. Will that make it more difficult Mm -hmm. for consumption, for that demand to come off? is the fact that we've pivoted to more goods purchases. We still have people purchasing goods some 20% higher than they were pre-pandemic. Maybe it goes more quickly. So my, my thoughts at the time of June was, we will have to be mindful that we are moving quickly, also in conjunction with a balance sheet coming down, and we'll just need to be watching for all the signs that the economy is beginning to respond. Well, the general consensus among you and your colleagues seems to be you raise rates to a restrictive level and you leave them there for a while. 
rather than start to bring them back down again. So what's your level and how long do you think that they would have to stay there? So I think knowing the exact level, knowing the exact number um, is really gonna be a process. Um, I couldn't tell you today what's, where we are today is not restrictive, I would argue yet. We still have high inflation. So I think it tells us we have more room to go. That we would bring those rates down quickly, and I've seen that in some of the forecasts, seems a bit remarkable to me. How are you looking at financial conditions lately and what they've been doing? Uh, we've seen them tighten, and then the inflation number looks not quite as strong, and they loosen again. Uh, is this a transmission problem? Does it make it harder for you to do what you're trying to achieve? Is it a Fed communication problem? So I do think it's important that we be clear in our communications. Uh, the markets are volatile right now. There is a lot of uncertainty there. So uh, in some sense, it's not surprising that we can see things moving around. But I think a commitment from uh, the Federal Reserve to be clear about where we are headed with those rates is important. And I think that process is underway. Do you think it's gotten better? I think you've heard people describe where, where we're looking, that okay. the fact that we need to keep moving rates higher uh, is going to be important until we see some meaningful evidence that inflation is coming down. Esther George joining Mike McKee uh, from the, uh, the Jackson Hole Symposium, which is going to be, which has kicked off. Uh, it's uh, two hours behind the, uh, the New York time zone. So they're right in the middle of America. Uh, it's an early start uh, for, uh, for our colleagues in the United States, but they seem to be enjoying it quite a lot. Uh, Mike McKee is going to be appearing tomorrow in a hat. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of what is the result tomorrow, do you think, Christine, for um, Jay Powell? What, what do you think he's going to try and achieve? Well, I think he might try and walk this line, uh, right, of uh, indicating the Fed's commitment to this tightening process, but perhaps try and get away from pinning down too many specifics on how high and how much. And and I think you know, this is going to be the problem because there is a gap between what markets um, deem would be enough and clear enough communication, as Esther Georgia herself said, should be a priority. Um, for markets, it would be that specificity that they will want to be looking for yeah. from the Fed, right? Right? not just the direction, but I think it would be, by her own admission, difficult to really say what is that restrictive level that they need to get to and how much they're going to have to do before we get there. The problem we've had is that, that Jay Powell's press conferences, we've had, we've had hawkish meetings, hawkish results from meetings, 50, 75 basis point hikes. Then Jay Powell comes out and sounds dovish. Do you think he is instinctively dovish? And do you think we may see some of that tomorrow? Yeah, certainly risk of that uh, for sure because if, if nothing else you know this is an opportunity for him to kind of take stock of the impact of the previous um, meetings from the Fed where there was a little bit more of a hawkish stilt and maybe recalibrate that message but then I think the risk with that is that you really do uh, run the risk of giving markets whiplash here and, and uh, potentially lulling them further if they already are in the sense of complacency that the Fed may be getting close to done when perhaps they really aren't Absolutely. Um, as I say, tomorrow we will be taking that speech from Jay Powell live and in full right here on Bloomberg. It starts at 3 p.m. UK time, 10 
a.m. Eastern time, New York time tomorrow. And we will carry that live and in full, both on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television. They've only just started televising it. Uh, it is almost an accident of the pandemic that we are doing this. Uh, but now it looks like it's going to become firmly embedded. That wraps things up. U.S. markets drifting sideways at the moment. The S&P is up by around half of 1%. Uh, you've got the Nasdaq tracking a little bit higher up around 7 tenths of 1%. Uh, but very, very light volumes as we await that, await that speech tomorrow. That wraps things up from Christine and from me. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.